0: Well, good morning. Once again, in the Gospels, there are 35 different parables that Jesus shares that are recorded for us, 35 different parables. A parable literally means a cast alongside, the cast alongside. Parables then were stories that were given alongside of a truth that Jesus was using to communicate to the people. Usually one or two key truths were communicated in the parables. In the parables, the parables functioned in really two ways. For some, they ultimately concealed truth. So if somebody's heart was hardened against God, the parable that was given would would not be understood, would not be accepted, would not be received, and they would harden themselves even more. It would seem at times to enrage them as they pondered, what were these things, these parables, these stories that Jesus would give? But it also did something else. Not only do we see it concealing truth, but it also revealed truth. It was a way of communicating that expressed a truth in a story, in a way of understanding. Repeatedly, to our comfort, to my comfort anyway, as they ask and they discuss oftentimes, the disciples in humility say, what did you mean by that parable? And Jesus takes the time to unpack that for them. It's been said that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Uh, on a regular basis, through the Gospels, as well as in the book of Revelation, parables are followed up and the stories are followed up with this charge, he who has ears let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. The parable often reveals this for us in our text this morning as we finish off Galatians chapter 3. I've entitled the sermon Paul's parable. I want to be clear, this is not an actual parable that Paul gives for us, but rather the imagery. I'm choosing to play with it a little bit and form it into a parable. My hope is that we will understand the four components of what I will be presenting as Paul's parable, four components to the story. That if understood, my hope is that personally it will mean for your life that you will desire following Jesus Christ as King. That those who follow Christ, as you understand these four components, if you will but come and confess Him and trust Him as your King, repenting from sin and placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will receive a secure standing in Christ. That's what the latter verses that we're going to look at are going to speak on. So as you have your Bibles, go over to Galatians chapter 3 as we look first and foremost at the four components of Paul's parable. Four components of Paul's parable. So as we get them, we walk through them, and you're going to get excited because we're going to go rather quickly through them at a good pace. And we're going to hit the last three verses. The second big idea of what do we do with this sign and what do we do with our secure standing then that we have. And realize, you're forewarned, we're going to bog down a little bit when we get to the last three verses. The reason we will is... There's two particular verses, two points in those last three verses that are highly heavy texts. Controversial texts, we might say. Texts that are, by God's good providence, something we're discussing on this day. But realize they are weighty. So you may have heard them mentioned or referenced at different times. My hope is as we walk through this book, you will see in its context that God's good plan unfolds using God's good word for God's people who are made good by faith alone in Christ alone. So let's look first and foremost, what are the four components of Paul's parable? Four parts to this story, this cast-alongside-truth story that Paul gives for us. The first, we come to the very beginning of verse 23, that those imprisoned are the Jewish people of God. Those imprisoned in the parable. So imagine this gigantic jail cell, and inside of the jail cell are the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, Israel, the chosen people of God. Inside the jail cell is the Hebrew people. I want to make clear before we even go in and unpack this verse that the Scriptures also speak in a broader way of that all who sin are categorized as being imprisoned. So whether you're ethnically Jewish or not, if you have sinned against God, you are imprisoned, the Scriptures teach. Jesus says, I'll give you the reference in John 8, 34. Jesus tells the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone, everyone who practices sin is a slave God. To sin, and Paul says a similar idea, the same idea in Romans chapter six, verse seventeen and eighteen. Paul says, he says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Uh, That that is an element that we're actually going to look at in more depth in chapter 5 of this book. It causes us to, it forces us to when we discuss the good fruit of the Spirit, those that live as slaves of righteousness for Christ. So understanding, in a general sense, all are enslaved to sin, all of us. doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter your gender, your background, we are as sinners enslaved to sin. But in this parable that Paul gives, he's speaking specifically of the we. And the we here is the Jews. Now before faith came, we were held captive. That's the Jews, the ethnic people of God, Israel. It's important to understand that from the very beginning, the law was specifically given to one nation. It wasn't given to the Egyptians. It was given to the Israel through a promise that was given to Abraham. And it had in that promise a multitude of promises. One of those key promises, and I believe the key promise that Galatians is dealing with, is how is man made right with God? How is man and woman made right with God? Part of the promise that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis 12, as we've looked at before, is a promise to bless all the families of the earth. That promise, as we've seen, comes through Jesus, the seed. So we're going to see as the story unfolds, all who are in Christ, all who come by faith alone in Christ alone, find themselves It's part of the family of Abraham, something we're going to unpack in further detail. But the very first component of the story, the parable, is to understand those in prison, those imprisoned are the Jewish people. Okay, why? Because secondly, the second part of the story, pick it up in verse 23 through 24, the prison guard is the law. They're in prison, so the question becomes, who's keeping them in prison? Who is holding the Jews captive in this prison cell? The answer is, it is the law. The law is holding them captive. Verse 23 through 24, the very first part of 24. It says, under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. Now we looked last week, if you remember, about how the law itself functions as an amplifier. The law was given, the text said, because of transgressions. Transgressions, our sin, are violating the character and the nature of who God is. See, the law is not bad. The law is not bad. The law is good and that the law reflects the character and nature of God. A holy God has given a law for men and and women and Jew and Gentile to understand, but given specifically to the Jews to grasp and understand the character of God. The law keeps everyone captive. Although it was only given to Israel, a stiff-necked people, a people small that he would bless in such a way, that the nations would look and say, that must be the true God. Yahweh must be the true God because he is blessing such a, a stiff-necked people, the scriptures teach. And it's through that seed, through Israel, the one who would come up under the law will she shortly, would bring salvation. But the law bound Israel. Israel would try a multitude of ways, one to run against the law. So they would live in a way trying to keep the law. And What happened as time went by is they thought maybe if we obey the law well enough, we'll be able to get out, but they can't because no one can keep the law. Israel could not, we cannot, you cannot individually and collectively as a group. We're broken, we're under the law. Israel tried another tactic. If we just take a time to walk through the Old Testament, you'll see repeatedly they, they tried a tactic of obedience, and then what happened is they quickly forgot Yahweh. They forget God. The Scriptures teach again and again. And in doing so, they live as a people who make a law for themselves. Israel looks like the world. As a matter of fact, on many occasions, as we walk through the historical books of the Old Testament, Israel looks worse than the world. Again and again, even the people that God uses do broken things that, that causes The pharaohs and the other leaders to look and say, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? The people are broken. So Israel at seasons, at times, will live in such a way as though there is no prison guard. But that doesn't get them out of prison. Any more than a literal prisoner today would say, there's no guard, there's no prison here. The reality is they're still held captive. Israel repeatedly would try to get past the prison guard, but they could not. They would try to keep the prison guard's rules, but they could not. Because the law had held them captive. The law, if it was a person, would be the perfect employee. The law was good. The prison guard was good. He was amazing at his job. We would all want to hire him in a second. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. He never skipped work. He never showed up late. He was present 24-7. We could call him a workaholic, let's be honest. He stayed all the time. He would never let them go. His presence was always there. And he always did exactly what he was supposed to do. Interestingly, this word, as we refer to the law as amplifying Israel's awareness that they can't get by him, that they're hopeless on their own, that they need this promised Messiah, this Christ, this sinless one, that literally we have dozens and dozens of prophecies through the Old Testament written down before Jesus would ever come upon the earth of who he would be, how he would live, what he would do. Everything is recorded before Jesus ever comes down. It's the fingerprints of God about who the Messiah would be, the promised anointed one of God. But the law was a constant presence, and it was also a source of discipline. This word translated for guardian here, the law was a guardian. It's this word pedagogue or pedagogos, which if you just say that, you'll feel smarter automatically. Pedagogos, you can go home and try and use that in a sentence. What a pedagogue was, was a guardian. It was a guardian of sorts that would be hired by the head of the household. By hired, I mean they were typically well-respected servants and slaves in the household. And they would take and they would function as a custodian. You've heard the term legal custodian or guardian? You've heard that term today? That's coming from this word. This is the idea for it. It's where it comes from. What the, what the custodians would be, the servants would be, is they would stay with the boys in the house until they were 16 years of age. And so they were trusted. They were put in a position over authority of that one, or if they had multiple boys, which most did, they over all those boys. And the guardian would go and follow that boy everywhere he went. He would take them to his responsibilities. He would take them to the gymnasium for training. He would never leave his side. The guardian did his job of being a presence and being a source of discipline So that if that boy got out of line, he would discipline him to swing the rod, to train him up to be a mature adult by the age of 16. So just as the pedagogue, just as the law as our guardian had a purpose of a constant presence and a constant source of discipline, so too the pedagogue, the law, served a purpose for a specific measure of time until what? Until faith came under the law, imprisoned under until the coming faith would be revealed. And that leads us to the third element. So when would the coming faith be revealed? It causes us to see not just that the imprisoned in the room are the Jewish people, but secondly, that the prison guard is the one observing them and holding them captive, being a presence and a source of discipline for Israel. But he would get to a point of retirement. He was to retire when the key came on the scene. There's only one perfect key that fits in the jail cell keyhole, and it's Jesus. The key is, we come to verse 24, the third component, the key is faith alone in Christ alone. The key is faith alone in Christ alone. Verse 24 picks it up, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. We've spent a lot of time already in previous sermons looking at justified. Not a perfect explanation, but a clever explanation that somebody once put on that word of justified. How do I know if I'm justified before God? The question is, it's just if I had never sinned. That's the corniest thing I've ever heard. I'm sure a dad wrote that definition for to understand justified. Worst dad joke theology ever. Just if I had never sinned. But it is that case. The question becomes, how can those held captive become free and right with a holy God? How can God who is holy have a relationship with you and I who are sinners against a holy God? Sinful in action and sinful in thought. How can God do so? How will we be made right with God? Well, the answer is, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The pedagogue was to retire. He served a purpose at a place and time. The promised key had come. The, 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 The key is in the door. And this is the sadness. This is what we don't want to miss. As it leads to the fourth element in just a moment. The key is in the door. Christ has come. But the majority of Hebrews, the majority of Israel, did not receive Jesus as the Messiah. Some did, like Paul. And early on, remember, a majority of the early church right away was ethnically Jewish, that placed their faith and trust in Christ. But then the Gentiles, the non-Jews, grow and grow and grow and receive Christ, and the gospel goes to the nations. And here we are today, 2,000 years later, singing to Jesus and worshiping the Lord and founding our lives and our marriages and our relationships on the gospel living lives of repentance in line to the word of Christ in obedience to the Holy Spirit who indwells us. But a majority of Israel did not receive the Messiah. They sit in the jail cell today hoping for a future promised key. But the promised key has already come. The promised key has already come. The absurdity and the sadness of this parable is the key has already come. The guardian, the prison guard, has already retired but it's as though they've taken a love offering to keep him employed for a while longer. He's supposed to be on a beach somewhere. He's supposed to be done. But they're keeping him employed, thinking that maybe if they obey it, then the key will come. The key has already come. The key has already come. I want to speak of retirement just for a moment. I want to clarify there. Retirement is, as believers, we never retire, do we? The calling that God has given every one of us as believers, regardless of your age, is retirement means this. The Lord may give you more time, possibly more time when you retire from your job to focus upon your calling to be making disciples of Jesus Christ. The time that the Lord may give you in a season of retirement, should you be blessed with it, is to be more intentional to make disciples with your friends and your family and the places that God calls you in your local church and other places But we never retire from disciple making. It is a charge worthy of your life regardless of your age. Pursue other dreams and you will find hollowness. Pursue disciple making, knowing and glorifying God and you will find the purpose by which you were made to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. We pray that for the youngest and we pray that for the oldest until the Lord should call them home or come again for his bride. That's the calling. So the question becomes that the key is faith alone and Christ alone is what gets them out of the jail cell. Well, who's free then? Well, logically, we would think before we read the fourth point, the fourth component to the story, well, the Jews would be free. And that's true, but it's not the full story. Look what the verse says. Look what the verse says. Verse 25 and 26. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That's great. So, So we know we can say right away, the Jews are free. Those that trust Christ are free, but verse 26 is there. So it's not just the Jews are free because they've trusted the key, who is Christ, but verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all, all y'all, with a good southern accent, all y'all are sons of God through faith, all of you. So Paul's saying, us, we were held captive as Jews, bound by the law, but you as Gentiles don't try to get into a jail cell to get closer to Yahweh. You're already free because you've already placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's not Jesus plus the jail cell. It's Jesus alone. So don't go after and try to employ a prison guard to get closer to Yahweh. You already know Yahweh. You know Jesus. You are close to the Lord. You're in Christ. You're free in Christ. And that's the freedom that they have. Those set free include all Jews and Gentiles that are in Christ Jesus alone. And here it is. It causes every one of us, all through this book, to ask ourselves personally the question, not what your nationality is, not what your background is, not how much you make. What it makes every person ask themselves is this. Am I in Christ? Am I in Christ? That's the question of the book. And to those that answer, I am in Christ, he tells them, don't you go chasing the jail cell. And to those not in Christ, he says, you look to the key, Jesus Christ, and come out of the jail cell. And walk by the Spirit, who leads us in line to live according to the goodness of His word. That's the thesis of the book. That's the thesis of our lives. This is a story that doesn't end. I'm going to give you a couple references in Galatians. So make sure you're in Galatians. I'll give you a couple references to look at. In Christ, am I in Christ? In Christ is a theme he never abandons. In Galatians 1:22, Look at Galatians 1 verse 22. Isn't that a great sound? It would be like a soothing phone ringer. I don't think phone ringer is the right word, is it? That's definitely not accurate, phone ringer. I can't even think of what it's called now, but I'm going to call it phone ringer for the rest of my life. I'm staying with it. Am I in Christ? Look at it in Christ. Look at how often it's used. Galatians chapter 1, verse 22. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are what? In Christ, look over a chapter. Look at Galatians 2.4. Galatians 2.4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. So again, the freedom that we have in Christ, freedom from the law and freedom from sin. Galatians 2.17, a couple verses later. Galatians 2.17, I'm just going to be part of it here. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, look over to Galatians 3.14. We looked at this recently. Galatians 3.14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then two more times, the coming verses, it's going to say again, in Christ, in Christ, in those verses. But we'll do one more. Look at Galatians 5.6. Galatians 5.6. Just to show you, he never leaves the thread of the discussion and the question, am I in Christ? That's the question, am I in Christ? Not, am I in Christ and the law? Not, am I in Christ and circumcision, part of the aspect of the Old Testament law? Not, am I in Christ and of the dietary restrictions? It's, am I in Christ? That's, what, that's the key. Remember, Jesus plus anything equals a foil. It's a false gospel. It's, am I in Christ? That's the key question. In Galatians 5 6 For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So we've seen in Paul's parable, we've seen those imprisoned. That's the Jews. We've seen the prison guard. That's the law. And now we've seen, thirdly, that this reality that we have in our life and understanding that those who are freed from the law and freed from the prison guard are those that have trusted in Christ alone. He's the key. The key is Christ alone, faith alone and Christ alone. Fourthly, who's freed by the key. The key is so great that key not only leads the Jews who are held captive that believe in him, but also the Gentiles who have faith and believe in him. It leads us then, secondly, to come to verses 27 through 29. The phrase is this. Paul leads the church and leads us today to ask, what is the symbolic act and the new received status of those who have been set free? So he hints at it, he gives it in verse 27, those that are believers do this. This is something they do, it's hand in hand doesn't make them believers, but those that are believers ought to do this thing. And then he's going to speak in 28 and 29 of how good our status is, how received into the body of Christ we are. All right, so here we go, verse 27. Controversial issue in text number one. You're going to be glad you didn't miss this sermon, by the way. Not because it's great, but because the text makes us deal with great things. That's the benefit of preaching through the Word of God. It causes us to deal with great things. Here we go, verse 27 will read the verse before we go back, and you can see how I phrased it. Verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. How have I explained that? How have I synthesized? How have I boiled that down in verse 27? You can see fill in your fill-in-the-blank. Firstly, water baptism is an early symbolic act of those freed by Christ. So they're freed by Christ, and then in response to being freed by Christ, in response to the key, they are water baptized. And what's it do? It reflects, baptism reflects, as we saw a few moments ago with Zach, it reflects their secure standing as believers who have been made into a new creation through faith alone in Christ alone, from death to life, from from death in Christ to walk in newness of Christ. Just as Jesus defeated death and rose again, that's what's being modeled in baptism. Now, number one. I understand that a multitude of you in reality have probably come out of churches in which you have heard the teaching that you are made right with God by baptism. That baptism plays some component to your being regenerated. That word generation, think of a generator. What would happen if the power went off in here and we had a generator? What would the generator do? Bring the lights back on, right? So there's a teaching called baptismal regeneration. A teaching that teaches that through baptism, through the washing of water, one is actually through that made alive, that it's faith in Jesus and Jesus works through the water to bring a person to life, to literally wash away their sin. That is an incredibly popular teaching. I hope you'll understand through the text as we walk through this book that that teaching is false and it needs to be rebuked. It is not biblical and it's not correct in this text. I want you to flip over to Galatians chapter 5. I'll give you the text as an example of this so you can see how serious Paul would take it. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 12. Galatians 5, verse 12. So, what was the key issue that these Judaizers were doing? They were teaching Jesus plus circumcision. Look what he says regarding those who are doing so. I wish that those who were troubling you would even emasculate themselves or mutilate themselves depending on your translation. So, let's get awkward and straightforward about this. Paul is saying that this false teaching is so serious that he wishes, because they're disturbing the unity in the church and they're causing people to stumble in their faith, they're teaching Jesus plus something makes them right before God. And what he's saying is these people that are teaching, you need to Observe circumcision to be made right with God in addition to Jesus, or, or that alone. It's in those people, I wish they would practice what they preach so much, they wouldn't simply circumcise themselves, they would emasculate themselves. Do you think Paul is serious about anyone who adds something to faith alone and Christ alone to be made right with God? Do you think he's serious about it? So, those today that teach that baptism is what makes somebody right and acceptable before God, I truly believe if that was actually taking place here in the first century, if those people could time warp and go back here to Paul, what Paul would say in line with this verse would be along the lines of, I wish those that were teaching that you were made right with God by faith in Christ and baptism would go the whole way and drown themselves. That would be the parallel. We cannot play with the gospel Because only the gospel saves. We will only be made right with God by salvation, by grace through faith in Christ alone. None of us comes before God and says, look, I've got it all figured out. Look at my resume. Look at what I know. Look what I did. Salvation is truly unearned favor that the Lord casts upon us. That we come before him not saying, look, I did this, therefore now I'm a believer. But what believers did in response to being worked in Christ is they said, I want to be publicly unified with Christ. I'm unashamed to declare my allegiance publicly before him because it represents what's already happened. I'm one with Christ and his word calls me to faithfully walk in obedience to him. And Christ obediently called all the nations to be baptized in obedience to him. And so we might refer to to baptism in this sense in a similar way, not a perfect example to kind of how we might say a honeymoon. A honeymoon is a good gift. It's a good thing to be able to do, to go and partake in. But does the honeymoon make you married? No, right? A honeymoon doesn't make you married. A honeymoon's a good gift. And for some people, for Sarah and I, we got married when we were in college, and so we weren't, it was like on a weekend. We didn't get to take a honeymoon for a while. So there was a pause between there. But in the first century world, once someone came to an awareness and understanding of their sin and an allegiance to Jesus Christ as the king of their life, they were baptized pretty quickly. So if, if you're to refer to somebody, we had a couple in our church get married yesterday, and if we refer to their honeymoon, what right away do you associate with their honeymoon? Marriage. Marriage. Their wedding. They got married. So, too, Paul addresses that as baptism. For as many of you as were baptized, that's all of them, all of y'all as believers, you were baptized. What's baptism associated with? Your confession and faith in Christ. They're hand in hand, but they're not one because of the other. You're not a believer because you're baptized, but as a believer, you ought to be Baptized. If you miss that order up, if you mess that up, you make a huge mistake that we're not permitted to make in the context of Scriptures. It would completely distort anything. So Paul's not coming on the scene and saying, whoa, 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 you made a huge mistake. It's not faith and circumcision, it's faith and baptism. Is that what Paul's saying in the, in, the, in, the, in the book as we've walked through it? No. He's saying it's grace and faith alone. And Jesus Christ, the one who paid our debt, Christ is our King. All who come to Christ find a perfect Savior. Come to Christ alone. Come to Christ alone and walk obediently as one of his kids. All right, glad that we dealt with all the intense text of today. We'll stop. No, we won't. We're going to verse 28, 29. (laughs) So it goes to the second element. So all who have trusted Christ have put on Christ and his salvation. All believers ought to be baptized, but we must not mistakenly think that one's baptism is what brings them into Christ, or places salvation onto them. Those who are in Christ, what is their new status? Look at 2 Luke 28 and 29. It's this. Those freed by Christ, they have been welcomed into a new status as Abraham's offspring. We have been made fully acceptable before God by our union with Christ. Fully acceptable before God by our union with Christ. Here we go. 28 and 29. There is neither... Remember, all those that are in Christ, we just saw that, following the flow of the text. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All who are in Christ Jesus have been made equally acceptable before Yahweh, All of us, whether you're ethnically Jewish or you're a Gentile, by faith in Christ alone, you are all accepted equally before God. That should make us say what? Amen. I know we're not accustomed to that, but let's practice that on three. One, two, three. Incredible. That's going to sound amazing on the recording. I can't wait to hear that back. Also, we're not made acceptable before God based upon So so men are not more forgiven and adopted in Christ than women. We are made in Christ, His atonement on the cross, perfectly paid for our sin debt, men and women alike. Women are not more forgiven. Men are not more forgiven. We in Christ are one. We are Abram's offspring, heirs according to the promise, which should lead us to say what? Amen. And he goes even further. Remember, in the first century world, slaves, servants made up one-third of the Roman population, so, to that world, he says, whether you're a master or you're a servant, you are all equally forgiven. Incredible, isn't it? The book of Philemon fleshes that out even more for us. Brothers, brothers. So, that should lead us to say, what? Before God, amen. We're not more forgiven based on our status, our resume, our way to break people down. So, Brent, where's the controversial part in this? This doesn't sound controversial at all. Well, here it is. A huge amount of churches and denominations, take the third couplet. There is no male and female. And they'll take that text and they'll argue that there are no roles different in the body of Christ. They'll take that text as well to argue that we're completely identical. Not only is there no male and female, but there is no simply male and female gender. There can be a multitude as well. They'll say that Christ got rid of all of that So there is no gender distinctions. There are no, in this sense, as we understand it, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 5, in the context even of marriage in the church, Ephesians chapter 5 that deals with marriage as compliments that God has made us as male and female to complement. We're not identical. We're compliments. They would say this verse gets rid of all that. Galatians 3.28 gets rid of all of that. The context of Scripture, however, is different. What's the text say? What's this referring to? What did it get rid of? It gets rid of these hostilities and divisions and says, before God, we're accepted equally. Before God, you are one. It's talking about our relationship with God. it does not change how God made us male and female. It doesn't change any of that. It rather preaches consistently with the flow of this book that you and I, regardless of your genealogy, regardless of your background, and regardless of your gender, you are forgiven in Jesus Christ. You look to Christ and you find a perfect Savior, church. That's a gift offered to all people. You don't have to jump through hoops to get there. You come by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone and you find a perfect Savior, So understand this. I want to give you some some text maybe to write down and equip you right now at this moment. What I'm saying, what we're walking through with what the Scripture says, it's unchanging. God made us, before the fall ever took place in Genesis 1 and 2, He made us male and female. Before the fall, before sin ever came into play. Now sin has distorted a lot of that, so you see a lot of people abusing those roles. And that's a sin, and that's disgusting before God. But God made us as compliments, male and female, and he called it what? Very good. He made man from the dust of the earth and Eve from the side of Adam. And this is very good in God's design, male and female. And what happens in Psalm, Psalm 139, 13, he says, For you, this is after the fall, but for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. Look to Matthew 19. Look to Matthew 19. I'll give you a second to flip over there. Matthew 19. Realize this. Matthew 19, this text. For me to preach the last five minutes of what I've just preached, if I were to tell you what I've told you there and what I'm just reinforcing on what's in the Scriptures, if I were to give this sermon on a sidewalk in Canada, I could be arrested. We teach and we love people and we care for people and we serve people and we love them regardless of who they are. But we do not have the freedom, regardless of what culture says, to change the Word of God. We preach the truth, but we preach it with love, with care, with a calling to say, come in Christ, come to Christ, build your life upon the Word of God, live in repentance and surrender to the Word of God. It is truth. We don't get to determine what the culture and the world gives as a consequence for standing and building your life and marriage on the Word of God. The world decides that, but we must decide to love the world By faithfully standing and teaching the truth of God's word in a culture of shifting sands, look at Matthew 19. Now, Jesus is who? Jesus is God. So he's all knowing, right? He's the God man, 100% God, 100% man. If you missed the sermon on when we started on Hebrews chapter one, it's the last week in November. If you get online, we spent some time talking about the nature of Christ, the natures of Christ, fully God, fully man. So Jesus. The eternal son involved with creation and making them male and female. Look what he says. We'll actually start in 19.3 and we'll go down through 6. Look what Jesus says about not only marriage but gender in this way. He says, And Pharisees came up to him and and tested him, tested Jesus by asking this, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Verse 4, He answered, Have you not read, this is Jesus, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them Male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The Lord has designed and gifted us with marriage, the Lord has designed and gifted us with gender. But when the fall happened, we should expect fallen desires. We should expect distorted feelings and distorted desires to satisfy those feelings. But those distortions under the fall do not give us the freedom to change the clear teaching of the Word of God, that we are no male male or female in this sense. Before God, we each have a fully perfect Savior. And when men and women build their life upon the Word of God, they will find functioning families. But when we live foolishly by our own demise and our own whims and our own desires, We will experience the consequences that will reverberate in our lives, in our churches, in our communities, and in our children for generations to come, just like Israel experienced when they ran against the guard of the law of God. We are not made right with God by the law. We are made right with God by the key and the king. None of us come to God with a full resume. The only resume we bring to the cross is our sin. And we look to Christ and we find a perfect Savior. I've mentioned this whole time about the parable of Paul. Jesus actually said a literal parable about this. He said, and I'll read it for you, in Luke 18, 10 through 14, he speaks of a parable that's cast alongside truth. And in the parable you have a Pharisee and a tax collector, one who is sinful and despised in the culture. Listen to what Jesus said, this couplet that he would add to what Paul said. It fits right together exactly exactly. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, and a Pharisee, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself, he prayed thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. One chapter later, Jesus doesn't give a parable. He literally interacts with a tax collector named Zacchaeus, a man who made his fortune by ripping people off and extorting them. He goes and Zacchaeus turns and places his faith and trust in Jesus, a man of a greater amount of sins probably than any of us in this room. Paul himself said, I am a man greatest among sinners. And what did Jesus say when he met repentant Zacchaeus? He said, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house, since he also, Zacchaeus, is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Grace Bible Church is a house of the lost who have been found by Christ. That is who we are. We are a congregation of sinners, of broken people who have done more sin than we can ever imagine. We're stuck in jail cells of our own sin and captivity, and yet we serve the great king, the great key that came for us, who makes us the one who is forgiven, the one body, heirs of Christ and Abraham. Roman is going to unpack that for us next week in Romans chapter 4, and you do not want to miss an unpacking of your understanding as heirs in Christ. But make no mistake, church, we are unashamed to build our life on the good news of the gospel. For in Christ we have a perfect Savior. If you don't know Christ, look to Christ and have forgiveness. If you know Christ, remember the promise of the gospel. Remember Paul's parable and be unashamed to live for him in a world that desperately needs him. Amen? Two next steps. Two next steps. Number one, I made them broad, but ultimately my hope is that they would become quite precise for you. First question is this. The more I understand Paul's parable, the greater the expectation is that I would share and live it out. So the question becomes for you personally, and if you're married, for you as a couple. Lord, the more I understand the reality of the the captivity from the law, and the more I understand the goodness of the key, Jesus Christ, and that He truly has forgiven me, and He's freed me then to follow Him. Lord, what does this look like in my life this week with my responsibilities and my literal calendar? But secondly, we're saved as individuals, but we're adopted into a family. That's what a congregation is. We say the word church, but it's a congregation. This is the gathering of disciples of Jesus Christ, called herself Grace Bible Church, that meets in this location. We're saved to be a part of a body. The second question is, what will it look like for us more and more to believe this more fervently in the weeks and the years to come? And by God's grace, I'm excited to find out, but it begins today, doesn't it? I'm thankful, as we sing so often, as we sang a moment ago, that His mercy is truly more. I'm thankful that our king truly qualifies us to have a right relationship with the holy God, aren't you? Let's stand together and sing to our king.